Can I just say, I love your pastor. Thank you for your kind words, my friend. Uh, this is a man of God, and I am so grateful for him. The Lord has placed our hearts together over the last couple of years, and uh, as he said, hey, we're just we're family. We're cousins. We're cousins. Uh, he's introduced me to yummy polo and all I can say is yummy love breaking bread together love breaking chicken together and let me break the word of life together with you if you will take your copy of God's word and turn to the book of Ephesians as you're turning there as your pastor said I have the privilege to serve the Kentucky Baptist Convention and I serve there as the mission strategist. And what that means is I have the privilege to work with churches all over the commonwealth to help them think through what does it look like for your church to be intentional about taking the good news of Jesus all throughout the world. Part of my responsibility is to help our Baptist churches connect for partnerships. As he mentioned one of those is in Zimbabwe, where, where we have the privilege to not only encourage missionaries that are serving there, but also teach and train church leaders so that the gospel might be multiplied not only in Zimbabwe, but throughout sub-Saharan Africa. But also with that opportunity, we have the privilege to be a part of not just talking about racial reconciliation, but by God's grace trying to model what that looks like. So I'm grateful to stand on this first Sunday in February, this first Sunday of Black History Month, and talk to you about the Word of God and how the Word of God unites us unlike anything else. On a side note, we have an opportunity where I'm trying to recruit some help overseas, particularly in Kenya. Where I need some school teachers that be willing to go to Kenya and help train some other teachers, particularly some school teachers that might have some special education background. You don't necessarily have to have special education background, but we're needing some teachers, some Christian teachers that would go over to Kenya to help train some teachers there, as well as interact with some students uh, in a school there uh, outside of Nairobi. And if you're interested in that, if the Lord is speaking to your heart right now and saying, hey, you've got that skill set, you have those experiences, and you could pour your life into other lives in Kenya. If you're interested, you let your pastor know, and he'll contact me, and I'd love to come share more about that opportunity with you. But I understand there are a number of Jefferson County school teachers in this body of believers. So I'm calling on you as believers to be able to take those skills that God's given you and those opportunities that you have and to take it somewhere else and pour into others. So you pray about that. You see if the Lord not, might not be leading you to be part of that. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. I'm glad you're already standing. Pastor, evidently this is a wonderful habit that you've already created, but I was going to ask you to stand in honor of reading God's word but you're already standing, so praise God. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes these words. 
Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, you are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Look at verse 13. But now. Aren't you grateful for but now? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile them both in the one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away. And peace to you who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But if I might add, cousins and aunts and uncles, your family. But you are fellow citizens uh, with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, for this privilege that you've given us to gather as your people to sing your praise to offer up to you our prayers to offer up to you our lives to hear your word and we pray now holy spirit that you would give us ears to hear that you would affect our hearts that you by your grace and for your glory and for our good might do in us what you desire we ask this in jesus name amen thank you you may be seated Ephesians is likely a, a letter that was written for multiple churches. It was more of an opportunity to circulate a letter that probably began with the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the most important cities in Paul's day. It was also known for its extreme paganism, its worship of the goddess Artemis or the Greeks referred to as Diana. Temple prostitution and rampant immorality were the norm in this city. It was a society where anything goes. Enter Paul. He spent three years in this city preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and telling the people that the gospel of Jesus changes us. As he writes this letter, he wants to remind the believers that they were saved by grace alone, which leads to a life lived for God alone. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 
8 through 10, he tells them that they are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not as a result of works, so that they cannot boast. While not saved by their works, they are saved in order that they might work. What practically does it look like to be saved by grace through faith in order to work? In other words, in order to live distinctly for God in a pagan, immoral, and an anything-goes world. What does that look like? Well, one example is that it produces unity among people of diversity. And that's why we find ourselves in verse 11. You see, the gospel of Jesus, if we boil down the rest of this chapter, it would be this. The gospel of Jesus unites us with God and, check this out, and one, somebody help me, another. It unites us with God and one another. So here's what Paul says. First of all, to unite us to God and one another, here's what God does. God breaks our obstacles. He breaks our obstacles in verses 11 through 13. In verse 11, Paul starts out by speaking about earthly status. As Gentiles, the Ephesian church was considered the uncircumcised of the flesh by the Jewish people. You aren't of us. Not only do you not look like us, but you don't have the privileges we have. And so they looked at them with hatred. Here we find the obstacle of ethnicity, Jew versus Gentile. One writer said it this way, this division was absolute and any talk of reconciliation seemed monstrous and impossible. In the Jew's mind, you had a Jew and then the rest were dogs. The Gentiles, in their mind, you had Gentiles, or particularly in the Greek's mind, the rest were illiterate barbarians and babblers so these two groups vehemently opposed one another there was simply no way that these two groups would ever become one from the Jews perspective the Gentile as I mentioned was the uncircumcised one in other words what they meant by this is this you are not the people of God one you don't belong to God Paul, however, reminds the Ephesian Christians that circumcision in the Jews' mind was performed by human hands, but what God did was not with human hands, it was spiritual. It wasn't a circumcision of the flesh, it was a circumcision of the heart. You see, what is needed is not the outward removal of skin. What is needed is the removal of the heart. Circumcision of the flesh amounts to nothing without circumcision of the heart. You see, beloved, God doesn't resuscitate. He resurrects. God doesn't come in and do spiritual CPR. He makes the dead alive again. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, But you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. But God made you alive together with Christ for by grace are you saved by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good works. So Paul says, God doesn't resuscitate, he resurrects. Several years ago, I had an episode that happened to me for the first time. My heart went into atrial fibrillation. It, it, it went out of rhythm and it started racing. The doctor, as I went to the ER, later told me, it's like you've run two or three marathons. I wanted to say, look at me. Do I look like I run marathons? No. But my heart was going so fast and flip-flopping so much, they eventually had to put me to sleep. And take those pads, you know how you see on TV, and they go, clear, boom. And they had to re-shock my heart back into rhythm. That's not what God does. He takes out the heart of stone, the Bible of Ezekiel says, and then he puts in a heart of flesh that beats for God and loves God and wants God and desires God. That's what he's done. And so when Paul talks to these Ephesians, he's reminding them of what God has done by his lavish grace. So we need not the removal of skin, but the removal of the heart. So what are the obstacles that God breaks? Verse 12 tells us that we were separate from Christ. Brothers and sisters, we were separated from Christ. One writer says it this way. It's only as the Ephesians remember that they were separated from Christ. And only as they realize what the truth about, that, about them is, that they can really begin to understand the greatness of God's power. You will never realize the greatness of God's power until you realize the greatness of the obstacles which that power has overcome. He goes on to say, there are many people today who see nothing in Christian salvation, who are not, who are not amazed. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us never lose our amazement of what God has done for us in Christ. Let us never become satisfied as if it's just that old, old story we've heard time and time again and need not hear it again. Paul says, I want to remind you of what God did for you, how amazing, amazing grace really is. So he reminds them that we were separate from Christ. He says, at one time you did not know Christ. Paul is speaking more about not being in union or being united with Christ as a believer in the past. For that would have been true also of the Jew. Rather, he's speaking in reference to the Messiah by using the word Christ. You see, the Jews had the advantage over the Gentile in that Jesus was a Jew and he came for Jews and all the writings about him were Jewish. But as one writer notes, not only did the Gentiles not know this, not only did they not recognize who Jesus was, hear me beloved, they weren't even looking for him. They didn't even know he was coming. So he says we were separated from Christ, but he also tells us in verse 12, we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Verse 12. In other words, the clear advantage was for the Jew. To be a believer in the Old Testament was to become a Jew by faith. Yet it was the Jew who had the forefathers of the faith, who had the covenants and the writings. Everything that they had pointed them to the one true God. This is Paul's heart for the Jews. In Romans 9, he says, If it would be that I would reach my own fellow people, I would be cut off. 
from the faith, just to reach them. Paul understood that the advantage of being God's chosen people as the Jews, they had the covenants and they had the law, they had the descendants. But hear me, they still, as a whole, missed the boat. Lest we forget, Paul reminds us in Romans 9, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And so Paul uses the word that the Gentiles were not part of the commonwealth. In other words, they weren't citizens of Israel. And therefore they were looked at as not being citizens of God's kingdom. But in verse 12 there's another obstacle that he has to overcome for us. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. Playing off of this idea of citizenship or commonwealth of Israel, Paul says to the Gentiles, you are a foreigner. You are a stranger to the covenants of God. This would be a direct tie to Abraham. You see, Abraham in the covenant that God made with him said, Abraham, out of your seed, singular seed, I will bless all the nations. You see, since this promise is singular, Paul wants them to understand that the promise given to Abraham not only flowed to the Jews, but also to the Gentile too. The promise of the blessing for Abraham and his descendants was foreign to the Gentiles. They didn't even know there was a promise. This promise was a blessing for Abraham. This promise was a blessing for the Jew, but hear me, this promise was a blessing for you and for me. Not only did they not know of this promise, they weren't even anticipating the fulfillment of it. They weren't anticipating the coming of Jesus. They didn't not only know about it, but they weren't looking for him. But that's the beauty of the gospel. You weren't looking for it either. I wasn't looking for it either. When we weren't looking for him, he came looking for us. Our youngest daughter wasn't looking for us either. My wife and I had the privilege two years ago of adopting our youngest child internationally. Oh, we knew her. We had pictures of her. We knew her name. We prayed for her for years. We longed to see her. We longed to be with her. But understand something. We were strangers to her. She didn't know we existed. She didn't know anyone was looking for her. She had no idea we were coming for her. And then that day arrived where my wife and I showed up to the orphanage for the first time to meet our daughter. It was as if I was playing ball for the first time. My, my butterflies were flapping as fast as they could go. I mean, I was just a basket case. We walked into that orphanage, and, and we met the director, and, and she said, well, your, daughter, your daughter's asleep right now. Would you, would you mind waiting until she wakes up? I said, I ain't waiting until she wakes up. And I walked right out the door, got in the vehicle, and I drove off. Come on now. Are you kidding me? We had been waiting for her for over three years at this point. 
She had no idea we were coming. She had no idea we existed. And they said, oh, she's awake. Would you like to go meet her? Yes, we want to go meet her. So they took us around to this courtyard area where the children play. And as we rounded the corner, Pastor, she was rounding the other corner. And our eyes caught for the first time. I saw her, my wife saw her, she saw us. And I wish I could tell you at that moment, the angelic choir, kind of like the group that sang today, I mean, broke out in hallelujah. I mean, just absolutely singing beautifully. But that's not what happened. She saw us and she screamed. And she ran away. Beloved, that's what he did. That's what I did. We weren't looking for him, but he came looking for us. When we wanted nothing to do with him, he came pursuing us, relentlessly pursuing us. And would not stop at any cost to pursue us. But beloved, don't miss this. You and I were strangers to the promise, to the covenant. We weren't looking for his coming But it didn't depend on whether or not we were looking for His coming. It depended upon Him looking for us. So there's the truth that we were strangers. But there's also a truth that He wants us to understand. This barrier that He breaks down. We were without hope in verse 12. We were without hope. No doubt some of the saddest words in all of Scripture to describe the condition of the Gentiles. As well as all of mankind. No hope and without God in the world. Can it be any sadder than that? The definition of no hope is to be without God. To be without God is to be without hope. What a sad tragedy to wander throughout life, to wander throughout the world and have no hope by not knowing God. Life is vain. It's useless. A man or woman living life without hope by not knowing God is the one when trials come, hopelessness becomes more hopeless. But the one who is with hope by knowing God is the one when trials come, and they will, beloved, when trials come, hope is the anchor that keeps us grounded when the storms of life blow And the waves hit. And the heartache comes rushing in. Dear Christian friend, do you see the obstacles today that have been overcome by Christ for your great good? The hopeless now have hope. Look at verse 13. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been brought near. Very similar to what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 4, but God. Now he says, but now. This is what it was, but this is what it is. I know where I was, but I'm grateful for where I am. What we once were, separate, excluded, strangers and hopeless hear me we are no longer you see what once was exclusion is now union because of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin 
through the blood sacrifice of the innocent one, we are not only brought near to him, but we are brought near to the Jew as one family in God called the church. You see, the Christian faith is a faith in the blood sacrifice of a Jewish man cruelly treated and hung on a cross. And he makes us one family, both Jew and Gentile. So I ask you, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, people we normally would have nothing in common with are brought near to us because of that flow of blood. Thus, we have more in common with those in Christ than anyone else, even when you're born in Michigan and born in Tennessee. Huh? Even when your pastor says, you know, I don't have a mic that matches your skin tone. I said, that's quite all right. Just hand me the mic. It makes no difference. Why? Because it's the blood that unites us. It's Jesus that binds us together. So what does God do? Brothers and sisters, he breaks every obstacle that might be in the way. But there's a second thing that we know about what this great gospel does is God brings us unity. So God breaks our obstacles and then secondly God brings us unity beginning in verse 14 through verse 18. How does he do that? Well he begins by giving us peace. For he himself is our peace. Not only is Jesus our peace but he gives peace between those who once were hostile toward one another. You see yes as those who are under the wrath of God, we are now given peace with God through Jesus. No longer are we under his wrath. Now we have received his mercy. And because of that, we have peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. But he further takes those who have received that peace and gives peace among the most unlikely we live in a day in our own nation that is becoming more and more divided across barriers of ethnicity and color and class and politics. Ultimate peace with opposing groups will only come first when there's peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And beloved, if anybody, if anybody should demonstrate the peace that we've received from God that extends to one another, it's the church. If there ever would be peace, oh God, let it be through the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us together. So he brings peace. He also breaks barriers. In verse 14. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the hatred. The vitriol, the, the absolute disgust, he breaks that. 
which in the law of commandments contained an ordinance, so that to him, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. He breaks barriers. Paul recognized the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. And unfortunately, these differences had put up a wall of hostility, bitterness, and hatred. Paul didn't deny the differences. He didn't deny that the differences existed among the Jews and the Gentiles. He simply believed that the gospel is more powerful than our differences and our barriers. You see, what the gospel does is it unites us even though we have differences and causes us to see that though the differences are real, they should never divide us. The community around Ephesus was watching. They were waiting to prove that the God that they served was not a God that really transformed lives. You see, they wanted to prove the Ephesian Christians wrong. They wanted to say, this God that you say you're following, this God that changes hearts, really doesn't exist. He really doesn't change hearts. Don't you know for a moment that the world around us is watching? They're watching to see if the gospel we are proclaiming church really does transform. They're wanting to see, is there really a difference in the way that we interact with one another, in the way that we extend love to one another and grace to one another? You see, the witness of the church of Ephesus was at stake in the community and the world. Would they be united even in their differences or divided and allow their differences to build a dividing wall? You see, the gospel breaks such dividing walls. Jesus didn't come to build walls. He came to tear walls down. The gospel doesn't build walls. The gospel unites people under the banner of Jesus Christ. And so that's why, dear friends, it was so crucial for the church at Ephesus to live out the reality that this gospel transforms because Jesus breaks our barriers. Who would ever thought that both Jews and Gentiles would be saved and serve the same God? That they would worship together as one body in Christ? As one writer said, the differences had been turned into barriers in Ephesus. The differences had become a middle wall of partition. And only Jesus can tear down that wall. But what else does he do? He makes one from two, according to verse 15. He makes one from two. You say, well, that math don't add up. It's God's math. And it always adds up, right? The enmity, the, the hostility, the hatred that existed over the Jews having the law and the Gentiles not was real. The Jews despised the Gentiles and vice versa. Racism abounded among those Jews. Absolute hatred. And Paul is saying, beloved, it ought not to be among the people of God. So, what does he say? Through the flesh, death 
of Jesus, he fulfills all of the law and makes the two opposing groups one in himself. Making the two into one new man, what does he do? Thus establishing peace. Yes, there are cultural differences and preferences. But Paul is saying to them, but you are still one in Christ. Peace toward one another comes only because we first have peace with God. One writer described it this way. The unity that you have with them, those that you're different from but are united in the gospel, the difference that you have with them is greater than the unity you will have ever with anyone else in the world. Even if the unbeliever is of the same class, race, race, nationality, sex, or whatever. Your duty is to live in harmony with these brothers and sisters in Christ and to let the world know that you are a member of one spiritual family. That's what the gospel does. It makes one from two. But not only that, Jesus, in verse 16 and 17, is our reconciliation. So, so, so he's bringing unity. He's still talking about this unity that comes because of Christ. In verse 16 and 17, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away. And peace to those who were near. He is our reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Reconciliation is understanding that two parties are opposed to one another. And there's someone that brings them together. You see, beloved, God's wrath is against us as sinners. You have God on one side, you have us on the other, and then Jesus steps in the middle and he grabs both of our hands and he brings us together. He reconciles us together. Christ brings together those that were at odds. God with the redeemed and the redeemed with the redeemed. Let me say that again. God with the redeemed and the redeemed with the redeemed. He makes us one body to God through Jesus' death on the cross. In which Jesus kills all hostility that would, could, and might. Woulda, shoulda, coulda been in existence is gone. Why? Because of a crucified and risen Lord and Savior. You see, beloved, when we are vertically reconciled with God, we are horizontally reconciled to one another. When vertical reconciliation comes up in your house, then your house is open for horizontal reconciliation across the board. You see, Christ preached, he proclaimed peace to those who were far away, to those without the law, those that didn't have the privilege of the law and the covenants and the prophets, those that didn't know a Messiah was coming, Christ preached to those that were far away. And Christ also preached to those that were near, those that had the law, those that had the prophets, those that had the testimony of a coming Messiah. So he is our reconciliation. But he is also, hear me, verse 18, he is our access. Verse 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Beloved, he is our access. We all come to the Father the same way. There's not multiple ways to the Father. Through the death 
of Christ and his resurrection and the gift of his Holy Spirit, that's how we come, or we come not at all. In other words, there's not a black way or a brown way or a white way or a yellow way or a red way. There's the Jesus way. Through his spirit to the Father, we come the same way. We have access the same way through our great Lord. So God breaks our obstacles. God brings us unity. But third, quickly and lastly, God makes us new. He makes us new. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation, the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Beloved, God makes us new. You once were from different families, but now you're of the same family. We're family. No strangers, no aliens. Same household of God. If you are family, you don't knock. You just come on in. When you're family, you don't use the front door. You come in the back door or the side door. Now some of you are thinking, yeah, but you don't know my crazy uncle. We lock the door when we see him come and turn out the lights. No, it's not even like that. It's you long for the family to come in. Why? Because when you're family, you love the family. You see, the family is built on the teaching of the prophets and the apostles of which Jesus is the cornerstone. If he's not the cornerstone, then the whole building comes down. This family is built on that. The whole building is connected to the cornerstone, which causes, according to these verses, the growth of the whole body, of every part, every Part of the body is important. As all the parts are placed on one another, each part adds to the strength of the building. There's an interlocking that brings an interconnection and strength when they're locked together. They're stronger together than they are in their individual parts. It's like the old song links our body all together so that we form one body. I mean, how crazy would it be if the foot were just walking around by itself? If there was just a head floating around without shoulders to hold it there, or an arm. You see, the way I understand it, and I'm not a doctor, but I have stayed at a Holiday Inn before. The way I understand it is the, the foot bone is connected to the ankle bone. And the ankle bone is connected to the shin bone. And the shin bone is connected to the knee bone. And the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone. And the thigh bone is connected to the whoop 
hip bone and the hip bone's connected to the backbone and the backbone's connected to the shoulder bone and the shoulder bone's connected to the neck bone and the neck bone's connected to the head bone. Now hear the word of the Lord. Them bones, them bones gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones gonna walk around. Them bones, them bones gonna walk around. Now hear the word of the Lord. That wouldn't happen if they weren't interconnected. That's what Jesus does to the body. He connects us in ways we would otherwise not be connected. So he makes us new. In Christ, we are new. So what Paul is saying is, let's live as such so that the Lord is glorified and the world is a witness of his transforming grace in our lives as each of us make part of the body whole. Back in the orphanage. Our daughter saw us, as I mentioned, and she ran, screaming. Why? Because we were strangers. We were aliens to her. As only a mother can do, my wife slowly walked up to her and began to calmly and lovingly talk to her until she warmed up to us. A couple of days later, it was time for us to leave the orphanage with her. Up until that time, any moment that the director had said to her, do you want to go with them? She would break down and sob yet once again. But on this particular day, after we had prayed and prayed and prayed, oh God, you've got to move in this situation. My wife was feeding her lunch. They rushed in and they said, okay, now's the time to leave. And I was like, now? I said, now. So my wife with her in her arms, stands up with our two-year-old daughter and begins to take a step toward the courtyard. Any moment I'm thinking she's going to lose it and this is going to create quite the episode. But you know what that beautiful two-year-old baby girl did? She laid her head on my wife's shoulder. My wife walked out the front of that orphanage and we got into our van and we drove off. That was two years ago. That first night, still in her country, having not left that country yet, still in her country that first night, our daughter was, was scared. We, you see, we were still strangers to her. She was scared, and so my wife, as we laid in that bed with her, began to sweetly and softly sing, loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, little ones in tender arms, they are weak, he is strong, yes, Jesus loves me, and as she sang, our daughter fell off to sleep, can I say to you, for two years now, I'm usually the one that tucks her in at night. And before I leave her bedroom and turn out the light, my beautiful little Holly will say, Daddy, Daddy, will you sing, Jesus loves me? And we sing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to tender arms. They are, let me do it, Daddy, let me do it. He is strong. 
Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. You see, beloved, it's the love of Jesus that takes our diversity and unites us as family. Let us be the church that demonstrates there is power in the name of Jesus. And he will break every dividing wall down. For his glory and for our good, he does that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. In fact, you demonstrate your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He relentlessly pursued us. When we weren't looking for him, he came looking for us. He found us found us, and searched for us. And we thank you for the barriers that you have broken, not only to unite us to yourself, but to unite us to one another. Oh God, regardless of where we're from, regardless of the tone of our skin, regardless of the language that we speak, help us to be one in Christ. Help us to be a people that demonstrate Jesus Christ indeed transforms. You break our obstacles. You bring us unity. And by your grace, you make us new. We thank you. You are our great God. And you are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our affections. You're worthy of our very lives to be lived out in this community, across this state, around this nation, and around the world. You are worthy for us to cross the street and to cross the sea to say that our God saves. He unites us to himself and he unites us to one another. May it be so. May you use Forest Baptist Church to ignite a movement throughout this city that would ripple across this country and the nations that says our God unites us under his banner. So Father, we love you today, but we love you only because you first loved us. And we ask this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Pastor.